Jude, verses 20 and 21. No surprise. (laughs) But uh, here is that word. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Amen. Please be seated. Very familiar words. We've been here for a couple of weeks now. And uh, we're, we're looking at his, his statement, build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, Jude agrees with all the other New Testament writers in saying that prayer is an important part of our struggle against false teaching and false teachers. And, and, but he's also telling us that this is an essential part of our growth in grace. And I got to admit that I'm a little bit anxious. I I like to just continue moving on and and be uh, done with Jude. There's other things I like to look at, but here's a statement about prayer that I just, I, I just think that it's important for us to consider looking at praying in the spirit yet again. Um, and, and I, and I think so because prayer is one of those disciplines of the Christian life that's often neglected and, and even sometimes abandoned. Um, many find hard our prayer to be hard, and it is a hard thing to pray. And, and in fact, isn't it funny that out of all the various ministries of the church, the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting? It just is. It historically has been. Uh, yeah, I remember years and years ago, the deacons used to call for a work day. And on the Saturday morning, around 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning, uh, the saints, and we'd always get a good 20, 25 people, maybe 30 people coming out to, to, to work on the building, to paint it, pull up weeds and all that kind of stuff. But then our prayer meeting was only five. Um, it's just the way things are, and I, and I understand that. But, but partly it's because prayer is hard and it's difficult. And so that ministry is the least attended. And when people are invited to pray in public, uh, they, they decline. They, they shy away from it because they feel that uh, their prayers are inadequate. Well, my friends, prayer is difficult. There's no question about that. And we may stumble and we may halt in prayer. But still we believe that prayer is a means of grace and it is a means of grace to strengthen and to increase our faith. And God has even decreed to use our prayers to accomplish his will in the world. That's a tremendous mystery. I don't understand how, but yet God has said that as we pray, he will hear and answer and do. And we pray as Christians because we're united to Christ And that union with Christ unites us to all his body, his bride, the church. And so today we return to Jude's admonition here. And I think it's good to be reminded that he encourages us to pray in the spirit in light of the fact that we are living in the last days. You'll see that verse 18, where he reminds us how the apostles taught uh, the church that in the last times there will be mockers. He's reminding us that we're in the last times. We're in the last days. Now, to refresh your mind what that means, remember how Jesus' resurrection changed everything. On the cross, Christ took 
the curse of God. He took on himself the wrath of God. And in his death, he put an end, as it were, to the curse. Remember, Adam and, and Adam and Eve, when they fell, God cursed the land. And he, and he cursed their relationship. And he, and he cursed everything because of sin. But Jesus took that curse, and in his curse, he put it to death for those who are united to him. And in his resurrection, he defeated death. He defeated the grave. He put an end then to the old world that is, uh, that is under the curse. And, and he's inaugurated the new creation so that the New Testament now calls the present day the last times or the last days. These are the last days of this world. And one day, and hopefully soon, Jesus will put an end to it all by his coming. And that's what Jude means when he says, wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. He's just another way of talking about Jesus' return. Now, in these last days, we will endure persecutions. Jesus promised us that. He, he, he forewarned us of that. The apostles did as well. We will go through trials and hardships and tribulations. Now, some of those trials and hardships will come just because uh, while Christ has, in fact, inaugurated the new creation, it isn't here in its full consummation yet. And while we are ourselves and united to Christ and we're not under the curse, we still groan under the thorns and thistles and the difficulties that happen to a world that still is under the curse. So we're not under the curse, but the world is. And because we live in this world, we will suffer. Some of our difficulties come to us because God uses suffering as, as ways to perfect us, to sanctify us. And some of our trials and difficulties and sorrows will come to us because we are, in fact, in fellowship with Christ. And so ungodly and unprincipled men who hate Christ will persecute you. Uh, they, they will get to Christ by hurting you. Well, regardless of why we suffer in this world, suffer we will. And that should drive us all the more to prayer. And we have examples of this, of this fact and of that reality of suffering as reason for prayer uh, scattered all throughout the New Testament. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verses 23 through 29, Paul there recounts how many times he was in dangers, dangers of countrymen, dangers of strangers, dangers on the ocean, dangers on the roads. Uh, he, he encountered so many trials and persecutions and, and imprisonments, and his back was beaten and, uh, several times. And then he ends that section by saying, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? So problems without, problems within. And how did Paul endure those things? Was he just a strong type A personality that can just, you know, stiff up or lip it? <laughs> no. He said, in fact, we know that his whole ministry was grounded in Christ. And he found the power and the ability to preach and to minister despite all those hardships and difficulties and trials only because God's grace. And that grace was received to him through prayer. 
And that's why he begged the church. He, he begged the church. He pleaded with the church to, pr uh, to pray for him. We, we find examples of those pleadings in Ephesians 6, where he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Sounds very much like Jude here, doesn't it? Pray in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf so that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, did you catch what Paul said? He's not relying upon his own debating skills, his own oratory abilities. He's not talking about his masterful education, seeing people come to Christ. No, no, no. He understood that, in fact, he could do anything apart from Christ giving him that power, that ability And he asked the saints to pray for him for that very thing. And that's the lesson for us all, I think. When you understand how desperate you are, how needy you are, you're driven to prayer. Or we can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the very next chapter, where there Paul uh, mentions how he was afflicted with a particular thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. I, we don't know what that thorn was. Could have been an actual physical ailment. It could have been a, an emotional. We don't know. But nevertheless, this was a thorn. It was a messenger of Satan, and it troubled him. And he asked three times that the Lord would remove it. Three times. He prayed to have the Lord remove this trial. Again, Paul was having to care for the church. And so he was always praying for the church. There was no indication that Paul was a slacker in prayer. But still, it was these grievances, it was these annoyances, these fears and cares and these other kinds of trials that stimulated him all the more to prayer. That should be a lesson for us, shouldn't it? Isn't it true that the harder our trials and difficulties press down upon us, the more free access we, we have to God, I'm sure that you've felt it. You have trials, you go through disappointments, maybe terrible heartbreaks in your life, things that trouble you. Those trials, those hardships, those disappointments, those, those difficulties burden your heart and cloud even your mind sometimes so you can't think very, very well. And what do you do with those things? What do you do? Well, all these trials, all these difficulties, all these hardships and, and heartbreaks are God's invitation to come to him to discover the grace and his power to help you in your time of need. Ephesians 6.18 also tells us another reason to pray. With all prayer petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. There it is. Pray in the Spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. We just read that, but let's talk about it a little bit more. Again, we're living in evil days, aren't we? And, and in this evil day, the devil is, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. He never rests from shooting his fiery darts at the church or tempting this or that saint. And if that's not enough, that we have a terrible enemy in him, the world is under his influence. And this world is seeking to vanquish us and to snuff out our faith. 
That's what Judah's been talking about all these, these uh, verses. And if that's not enough, look again at your own weaknesses, your own doubts that trouble you on a day-to-day -day basis. If you don't think there's a need to be always praying in the Spirit, then you're simply living with your head in the sand, I'm afraid. No matter how prosperous you think you are, or however surrounded you are on all sides by, by an abundance of joy, there is never a time when prayer is not needed. During the last week, I was in my devotions, I was reading through Philippians, and that little letter filled me with, uh, with great joy, as the letter was intended to do. <laughs> But what part of the joy that happened is that I just realized for the, as I read it through, uh, you know, as one sitting, um, that, 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 that church was afflicted with many things that afflict us. And in all those things, you could see that Paul prayed. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 4 of that letter, Paul mentions how they all participated in the gospel. And so it was a reason for him to praise God and to pray for them. And, and, and later on in that same chapter, verses 29 and 30, Paul mentions how he prayed for them because they were suffering persecution. And so he prayed for them. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he tells them to be humble and to serve one another. Then in verse 12, he tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And how do you do that, with, with, how do you do that without God's work and God's grace? And so he prays for them for that. Then he wanted to send Timothy to them, but he needed to find out how things were going for him to do that, and so he prays. And then Epaphroditus came from Philippi with a gift of that from the church to Paul, and, but before Epaphroditus can go back home, he falls very seriously ill, almost to the point of death, and so Paul prays for him, for his health. And then in chapter 3, Paul addressed the problem of false teachers coming in. And so he prays for the church. And then in chapter 4, there's this division between these two women. And there's another reason to pray. All these things are reasons to prayer. And we have similar things going on in our own lives, in our own church. Don't certainly we be praying? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 34 through 35, gives us an encouragement in our difficulties. And this should incite us to prayer. Listen to these words again. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation? Distress. Okay, persecution. No, famine, nakedness, peril or sword. Paul said we can't be separated from Christ and that he is now praying for us. He's interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 tells us that he is also interceding for us in our distress. And so Paul goes on in that Romans chapter 8. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This one who loved us, this one who's interceding for us, this one who's praying for us, is ensuring that we will overwhelmingly conquer. And again, my friends, because we're united to Christ, his spirit fills you with his own life-giving grace. And so when we hear something like it, what we do in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where we're exhorted to pray without ceasing, well, we're inclined to do so. 
praying is just another opportunity to be like Jesus. And so Philip Dodderidge said in, in one of his hymns, Grace taught my soul to pray and made my eyes overflow. You know, the more you know of God's grace, the more you'll see Jesus. And the more you see Jesus, the more you'll hear that he's praying for you. John Calvin said in, in his Institutes, the more liberally God deals with us, condescendingly inviting us to disburden our cares into his bosom, the less excusable we are if this admirable and incomparable blessing does not, in our estimation, outweigh all other things and win our affection. That prayer may seriously engage our every thought and feeling. In other words, we need to understand that through prayer, uh, through prayer, you are being conformed to God's will and to Jesus' image. And when you consider all that he has done for you and what he, blessings he has promised you, it is a shame if we don't pray. One of the great lessons prayer teaches us then is that we depend upon God and we do so with full expectation. We cleave to him in full, in full hope. And as we do so, our strength is encouraged and, and strengthened. Oh, you know something? You will never see God answer your prayers unless you pray. And it is through prayer that we dig up the treasures of God's word of promise to us. When we are weak and fainting, we not only find God's power and wisdom displayed to us, but we discover just exactly how willing God is to draw near to us, to help us. And so James tells us, chapter 4, verse 3, you do not ask, or you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. But again, that, that is meant to give us, that gentle rebuke is meant to give us a, a, a lesson. In other words, the more we pray, the more we learn how to pray. The more we pray, and, and even if we are asking amiss, well, we're learning, aren't we? We're learning who God is. We're learning what God loves. When God doesn't answer our request, he's still listening. And he's using those prayers to sanctify us, to change us. Again, John Calvin almost always has something important to say. So let me, re, uh, let me quote him again from, from his commentary in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8. He said this. He said, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order so that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in mediating on his promises that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect both for themselves and all others, all good things. And in that way, prayer becomes a means of grace. We don't go to prayer because God is ignorant. No, he knows all things. We don't go to God expecting to change his eternal decrees and wills. And of course not. We go to prayer to learn who God is. With that, let me just point out one more thing about how God um, has so united us in Christ and exalted us in grace that he even uses our prayers 
to accomplish his will, blessing his people. Uh, you know, some have believed that since God has decreed the end from the beginning, that since God's divine providence governs this universe, our prayers have no real effect. Why pray when God has already predestined whatsoever will come to pass? And I've heard well-meaning Christians say that, well, there's no sense in praying. God already knows what's going to happen. He's already decreed it, so, you know, it's going to happen whether I pray or not. Well, if that's the case, then then be corrected. (laughs) Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul writes, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he will deliver us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers. And James reminds us of the example of Elijah the prophet who was assured of God's promises of rain. But yet it says that when he fervently prayed, that's when the rain came. You see, It is true that God has determined the end from the beginning. But for every end, he's also decreed the means by which that end is accomplished. And you know what? God has graciously ordained to use your prayers in the accomplishing of those things that he's foreordained. That's an amazing mystery. But I want you to take courage from this. Paul didn't expect to get released from prison without the prayers of the saints. Paul didn't expect to have boldness in preaching apart from the prayers of the saints. Our our prayer life then is encouraged by this, isn't it? And it's also encouraged when we understand to see uh, who God is. When we have a larger, more glorious view of who God is, then our prayers change. Remember how powerful God is. My friends, think back to creation. God didn't use some pre-existing matter to form the heavens to form the stars, to form the planets, or to form you. The earth and all the creatures that fly, swim, crawl, swarm, and walk on it were all created by God speaking a word. A mere word spoke all this into existence. That's power. Or think how he gave an old woman's womb the power of life. Or how he split the Red Sea and and how he gave manna in the wilderness to the people of Israel. And when Israel was vastly outnumbered by more powerful enemies, how many times did God rout those enemies, destroy those enemies, and made their enemies to tremble? He's not only the great God of, of, uh, of omniscient power. He is the God of salvation who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to save it. He is the God of grace. He is the God of peace. He is the one who rescues sinners from the power of sin. He delivers us from the power of the darkness or the dark kingdom. He is the God whose words are yea and amen. And all this means is that that God is a God who is in control of all things. And this great God is in control. He's working all things together for the good of his saints on the day of Jesus Christ. Saul, the self-righteous Pharisee, determined to wipe Christians out, determined to snuff the church from the face of the earth, to destroy it, 
If he had his way, the church would have been absolutely destroyed at 2,000 years ago. Ah, but God's people prayed. They set themselves to prayer, and God in Christ took hold of that Saul, transformed him, and gave Saul not only a new heart, but a new direction. As a preacher of that gospel, he tried to snuff out. Isn't that ironic? That's the power of God. That's the wisdom of God. That very Paul himself was arrested. He was thrown into prison for, for preaching the gospel. And while it may have looked bleak from man's perspective, yet God's people went to prayer. And through those prayers, even Caesar's household was coming to faith in Christ. Peter was in prison. He was, put to, he was going to be put to death. The people were praying. And the angel of the Lord came and delivered him. You remember that? Nothing, nothing is at all too strong for this God. Nothing is impossible for him to do. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. This, you're going to bear a child. Well, how can I bear a child? I'm a virgin. All things are possible with God. What's impossible for you? What's impossible for mankind? It's not, it's a word for God. There is promises in the scripture that says every one of your trials, every one of your tears, every one of your trials, every one of your sins are all now working out for your good because God is wise, he's powerful, and he's turning things around. Nothing can steal you out of his hands. Nothing can separate you from his love. And so, my friends, you don't have to be anxious for anything. Trials come into our lives. Persecutions level the churches. Divisions threaten to weaken the fellowship. And yet God is in control of it all. Everything is turning out for our good. And the greater view you have of God like that, the more joyful, the more persistent, the more frequent, the more bold your prayer will become. You're not going to some weak idol. You're not going to some God who is stupid. You're not going to some God whose hands are tied. You're going to the almighty king of the universe. A God who cannot be defeated. He's the one who's worth praying to. A God who loves with an unquenchable love will not reject us in our ignorance or in our weakness. Oh, he might correct us, but he will not cast us off. He will discipline us, but he will not cast us off. In fact, God will use all these things for your good. Again, this is a God who's worthy of prayer. And I hope this afternoon your confidence to seek his kingdom and his righteousness through prayer is only growing. Praying for the saints becomes a delight when you truly grasp that God is able to do exceedingly abundant above all we ask or think. Again, nothing is too small, nor is there anything too big to ask of God. We just sang that in one of the hymns. Again, my friends, we need to see that God, our theology doesn't allow us to see God this way, but yet, practically speaking, we do. We think of God as, as this great being who lives out beyond space somewhere. He's this great force. He's viewed in a general way. 
We confess that he's a personal God, but do we really believe that he is? Well, we need to see that he calls himself our father for a reason. He is your father in Christ. He is the one who has adopted you. And he has purchased you for an ultimate good. And he's waiting to bless you with all the fullness in Christ. No shame on us for ever harboring unworthy, wrong, low thoughts of God when he has shown such great love, rich love for us in Christ, right? Oh, that we would see, that we would see that we are his beloved children and that he, in fact, desires to bless us much more than we desire to be blessed. Do you believe that? I know that statement is true because the scriptures tell us that it was while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Jude has already told us that God wants to not only give us mercy, love, and peace. That's the things that God wants to give to us. But Jude told us that God wants to multiply these things in your heart. God has an inheritance in you. An inheritance is in fact so wonderful. It's so amazing that words are inadequate to express. But prayer prepares us for that. In prayer, we can see, as it were, the shores of heaven. So, my friends, let's be joyful. And let's be thankful. And let's go to him in simple confidence, believing that through, uh, through our prayers, mercy, peace, and love are ours from God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.